Causing the Effect, a podcast focused on the exploration of your mind, body, and spirit. What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Causing the Effect. We're doing a little bit of roundtable action today. Uh, I'm joined by two, two of my big brothers here, Paul and Sal, and the big guest, the, the man of the hour, uh, Mr. Martin Gurry, former CIA analyst and really a specialist in geopolitics, news media. Um, his book that I couldn't put it down, honestly, Revolt of the Public. We're going to talk about that for the majority of the show. Um, I would say in kind of summary, it's really explaining the tidal wave of technology and access to information that's really shaped uh, public attitudes toward towards institutions, towards authority. Um, I believe Martin quotes it as the crisis of authority. And Martin, if I did a bad job, you could correct me or give a little bit more brevity, whatever you, whatever you wish. No, I think you got it right. I mean, the book is essentially about the, um, the what I call the tsunami of information that was yes. generated with, um, with a digital the digital revolution. Uh, everybody thinks it's social media, and of course, social media pay, plays a lot into it. But my basic thesis is that it's the amount of information in relation to what our institutions can stand. Our institutions were, were built to withstand a limited amount of information over which they had a large amount of control. Um, today, we have a large, a gigantic, practically infinite for practical purposes. Uh, amount of information over which the institutions have almost no control. And much of what you see around you today, much of the craziness, much of the chaos is a consequence of that. Exactly. And I believe you pinpointed it to what, 2000, 2001 is when the information of the, the previous years from 2000 and the years before starts doubling from 2000 to 2001. And kind of this is that wave that we saw. I was... um. I was so, so shook by, by the entire thing, Martin. I think what you're doing is so important for young people to understand. Cause for me, you know, you don't give your answers till the end, but, uh, but for me, it gave me at least a little bit of comfort. Like this is what's going on. It's really connected to information. Now, now let's, uh, you know, trace back to, to, to little Martin here. Now you, now how old are you when you came from Cuba and moved to America with your parents? I was 11. 11. And do you think that shaped you to want to kind of focus in this information age and in, news media, or was it you going into the CIA going, I want to be 007, I want to shoot somebody? Um, well, obviously, being born in Cuba was, you know, formative in the, in the literal sense of the word. Uh, I had a, I experienced a, a right-wing dictator and a left-wing totalitarian dictator before I was 10. Wow. Um, but no, that had no influence whatsoever on my ultimate course that, that led to the writing of the book, nor did uh, CIA accept in a very indirect way. Uh, I was uh, a global media analyst, alas, in CIA. I never got my license to kill. So <laughs> I, I had possibly the least sexy job inside that organization. Uh, but it just so happens that when I was there, uh, you know, that, that particular organization that I was in looked at the, at the media of the world, could translate any part of it that you wanted to if you didn't know the actual language. So it was a huge, huge platform to be sitting in, watching 
you know, what was at the time a fairly moderate trickle of stuff, but it was still more than you know the classified information. And, and yeah, go ahead, Martin. You can go, you can go ahead. Yeah, and, and then all I was going to say is almost overnight. I mean, literally within a few months, that that very cozy system went haywire, uh, and and that that tsunami hit. Uh, I the the, the um, number that I throw out that you you referenced is that in 2001, uh, the amount of information produced in, in, in that year doubled that of all previous human history, going back to the cave paintings and the dawn of history, and it's been doubling ever since. So um, my when I left government, it seemed to us that this was, you could see behind that tremendous tsunami of information, you could see a gigantic amount of political and social turbulence, all right, in places that had never had it before. Uh, so when I left government, I decided, well, let me let me pursue this, and um, probably the year 2011, with, which was a crazy year in terms of protests all over the world in in uh, the Middle East, but also in Europe, but also here in democracies and dictatorships. And the, and the question was, what is the common thread? And the common thread seemed to be that these institutions, which are the same in all these countries, regardless of the political system, uh, couldn't withstand the amount of information that were set up. To, to protect themselves by owning the information space and they didn't anymore. You know, that's, uh, I, I find that interesting because, you know, when I read your book, I read it earlier this year. And one of the things I was struck by was, you know, in the book, you are, you're identifying specific instances where you see this conflict taking place in the Middle East and, you know, in Spain and Occupy Wall Street. And as I was reading it, I just felt that if you were to write this book today, you would have almost an innumerable amount of examples. Do you feel that it's been increasing over since you've written the book? And if so, why do you think that oh, might be? Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, the why question, of course, is, is that's a tricky one. But in the year 2019, I counted at least, and I say at least 25 major, and I mean major street protests. Doesn't even take into account all the populists that basically ride that same uh, wave of repudiation uh, right. by, uh, you know, basically posing as, as the uh, the advocates of the people, the public, uh, just street protests. Now, you have the very interesting circumstance that all that froze in 2020. It froze in 2020, with some exceptions, like uh, the BLM protests here, mm -hmm. a couple of other ones. But mostly around the world, this is a global phenomenon. This is not an American thing by any means. It's global. Uh, it froze because everybody was terrified and was staying at home. So the question was, um, and I think we have an answer. I mean, the question at the time was, so is this going to be it? I mean, is it going to be the thing that makes, restores authority to the institutions, you know, the health institutions, for example, the governmental institutions that, that, right. that need to uh, basically manage this crisis, or is it going to make the people even angrier? Is it going to be another instance of what of what people perceive as as, as failed failed attempts to uh, to deal with with what's important to them? And I think it's going to be the latter. I mean, I had a, I have a um, uh, a British analyst called uh, David Goodhart, very smart man. They told me, no, it's going to be the hour of the state. It's going to be the mm. hour of the state. Everybody's going to be terrified, and the state is going to be like you know, daddy's going to protect you. Um, and maybe there was a little bit of that to begin with. But I think by now, daddy has said so many crazy, contradictory things and, and has kind of, you know, been caught uh, not only 
not only being wrong, but pretending to know what they didn't know. And in fact, sometimes as with Fauci, you know, saying things that were untruths and knowing that they were untruths, even right. for the best of reasons. When a person tells you, well, I lied to you for the best of reasons, you, <laughs> you don't walk away thinking, well, thanks. You know, uh, you mm -hmm. walk away thinking, well, I'll never believe you again. Uh, and so I think you, there have been protests all over the world uh, having to do with lockdowns, extended lockdowns uh, all over the world, in Africa, in, in Asia, in Europe, in Latin America, uh, and here. So I think my guess is that, um, yeah, I, it, it, is, it was definitely on an upswing. It was, it was increasing. It was magnifying. The reason, if I were to say the why, is because the institutions were being battered down to nothing. They were, I, they were more visibly crumbling. The more that they got battered, the, the less effective they were, the less authority they had, the more the public could come at them and that cycle was continuing. That did get frozen. That's, it's kind of like a restart. So um, I'm not sure that we're starting exactly where we left off in 2019, which was 2019 was a disastrous year for establishments around the world, okay? And I'm not sure we're there now, but it's beginning, I think. Yeah. And it, Martin, it was interesting. I was looking into that and you had you had um, protests going on from all different parts of the country, all different parts of the world, all different kinds of of governments. You had Algeria, which is more of a dictatorship. You had Chile, which is more of a free form yep. government. This this whole this whole setup that that's going on, is it you, you think each one is really as simple as the authority? It's just a rejection of legitimacy at the top. I think. Uh, I mean, I think nothing is simple in human relationships. Nothing is simple in human societies. There are no single causes for anything. Even in a single human being, you try to figure out why you do any one important thing. Why did you marry your wife? And if you think you, there's one single reason, I, I'm here to refute you, okay? Uh, so it, it's very complex. Basically, what I do is not say this is why it happened. I provide a framework that says these things were happening, and if you look through that framework, things start to make sense, right? That's all the claim that I make. It's not like I'm here to explain the world away. It's too complicated for my little brain. So um, <laughs> basically, I, I think there are a couple of parts to it. I think, yes, there, the, the, the tsunami hit. The institutions almost immediately lapsed into a state of crisis. I think that crisis was compounded as time went on. I think there's been that blip with it, with the pandemic. I think it's resuming right now. But there's a second side, which is the public, uh, and the public is. Um, and, and I always want to say the, when I say the public, I don't mean the people. The people don't really exist. I mean it's a it's a, it's a basically a, a political philosophy category. I don't mean the masses. I, I don't mean even the crowd on the street has a relationship with the public, but it's not identical to it. The public essentially has a uh, completely negative attitude, a completely alienated, as I said, completely alienated from the institutions. And at the same time, unlike when I was a young man, I mean, I have experienced this I'm a 60s dude, right? I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I was, uh, I got tear gassed in the streets of Washington more than once. Um, and I can tell you back in those days, radicals had, a radical group was like a tiny little government. It was a 
there was a maximum leader and an ideology and we want, these are our programs. And it, most of it was delusionary, but it was an organization that doesn't exist with the public today. Uh, leaders are frowned upon, they're, they're anti-leaders, they're anti-organization. Those are things that are very unequal and, and uh, are, are consciously rejected. Um, so you have this public that is very anti, very, very uh, uh, sort of wedded to negation, very willing to smash at the establishment and has no replacement in mind. It just, if you were to ask the crowd in the streets in Tahrir Square, in Puerta del Sol, or Occupy, any one of the Occupy Wall Street sites, and you would spread them out and say, well, okay, suppose you guys win. What's going to happen next? They start fighting with one another. No solution. Because the one thing they had in common was that they were against. They had when they all had many ideas about what should happen, but no shared idea of what should happen. There wasn't that right. entity, that radical entity that I saw in the '60s, where if you were a radical, you would you would um, have a. I mean, basically, what you were advocating was a program, an ideology, and a program. This is just a a, a, a an explosion, an, an impulse. Of of um, dislike of, of hostility towards pretty much everything that stands, not just the government, but every standing institution, with a few exceptions. Right. I mean, I I find it interesting. I know in your book you use you know the term nihilism to kind of yes describe this kind of impulse, and you know I find that very interesting. And I was just wondering if you know if I could phrase this correctly. If you if you feel that this nihilistic impulse, this impulse to destroy without replacing it, is this more of a cause or an effect in that? You know, is this impulse just the natural outpouring of all this information where there cannot be a unified voice because there's too many of them? Or is this access to information from the public simply giving voice to something that existed prior, this lack of faith in Western values or a collapse of our cultural system? That, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I, I do believe that there are informational structural reasons for the nihilism in the sense that um, if you are a moderate voice, you are just lost in the babble, right? right. Uh, and to the degree that you're angrier and you're screaming and, and you are perceived to be completely um, uncompromising in, in your hatred of the status quo, to that degree, you will start to develop a, a following. And to the degree that you can then engage somebody on the opposite side, and get into these kind of kabuki theater battles in which uh, I'm going to get you and there, I got right. you. And so the other side then gets, they love each other, right? It's, it's a love hate thing. Yeah. Uh, if the other side were to disappear, who would you be, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the, you, you love the what you hate and, and you, are, you, you can't be moderate about it. You have to be very extreme. However, what you said, not necessarily in the way you said it, I think, I think there is more to it than that, more than just those structural reasons. I've been kind of thinking about that. It's hard to wrap your brain about, around it. <clears throat> but I think, I think there is, I mean, when you look at <coughs> what I'm beginning to call the cognitive underclass, right? People mm -hmm. who seem to disbelieve things that are obviously so, right? right. I, I mean, Donald Trump lost, come on. I mean, I, I didn't vote, I had no stake in that fight, you know, uh, but, but he lost, he lost, I admit it, he lost. It was like in 2016, the, the Democrats, it was, no, it was the Russians. No, he won, come on, he won. Right. 
So just face it. Uh, but people, uh, he lost by 7 million votes or more. And it's like, no, no, no. He really secretly won in a landslide. And, and there are people who won't, won't take the vaccine because they're, they're worried about conspiracies of the government. I mean, 80% of the public in one poll believes that the vaccines, the information about the vaccine being put out by the government is politicized, all right? Um, so when you have all these, you know, these the, the this the, uh, divorce from the let's call it the the, the cognitive system of, mm-hmm. of the mainstream you have to say w- what has happened here why are all these people disbelieving all this and it's nice to point the finger at them these are very marginal people not by the way uh these are not crazy people these are not uh you know insurgents or terrorists i mean when you look at that Poor woman, Ashley Babbitt, the only person that died. You know, she had been for 14 years in the Air Force. She ran mm-hmm. a, a little pool service shop in that pool paradise called San Diego, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. and um, she had been married. I mean, she, she seemed to be on the surface a semi-normal person. You look at her, uh, at her, at her digital media self-expressions, and this is a person who is completely out of touch with the mainstream, right? That she's fallen into this underclass and has fallen, has slipped into uh, the orbit of, of Q, right? The QAnon, mm-hmm. the QAnon uh, high priest who, who believes or, or pretends to believe, it's hard to say, that there are, um, you know, child kidnappings and devil worshiping amongst, you know, basically the gov- federal government is run by a pedophile ring. Okay, Uh, so so it's easy to point to those people and say, well, that's absurd. These are silly people. But then you really have to ask yourself, you know, how how can we have allowed such a whole, you know, the gigantic breach in in the fabric of our shared reality? And when you you ask yourself that, then you, you turn around and say, well, there are people who are responsible for that shared reality, all right? The, the, the highest calling of the elites, the highest calling of the elites, much more than you know, war and peace or, or superior to that, is as keepers of our shared stories and of our shared truths, right? So, you know, when, when Abe Lincoln stands before the fallen at Gettysburg, and invokes the propositions of the Declaration of Independence as a reason they died. You, I mean, this, this is, he's weaving a truth in a story about who we are that it's not just about that moment, it's, it's, it's explaining why you have to keep fighting for this, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's basically unifying the public around these shared truths. Um, I think the elites, part of what's happened with the digital tsunami is, um, of course, the crisis of authority, which means that just by standing on top of an institution, you have no authority. You, you, it almost falls on you to somehow have it by just the way you talk or the way you, you communicate or, the, or the, the, the way you live or some factor about you has to communicate trustworthiness. You don't get it from the institution. In fact, by being in an institution, you're almost immediately distrusted. And I think the elites who I think should have or might have um, might have 
you know, adapted the stories because it's part of what this has been is an extinction event for, for stories about democracy and for stories about religion and for stories about almost every institutional aspect of life uh, should have adapted those stories and should have reconfigured the institutions to this new environment. And what they have chosen to do instead is just pull up anchor and drift away from both and, and get ever farther away from, from the public. So I think if you ask yourself, why is there a cognitive underclass? Um, you have to point the finger at the people at the top. I mean, mm -hmm. I think so, at least to some extent. I, mean, well, I would agree with that. And, and to, to some, some part to go along with that, uh, I know you mentioned uh, in the book how there has to be a, uh, a realigning of expectations of the public and that these institutions are not going to create a utopia and certain things might be, you know, attainable and certain things might be unattainable. And then on this side of the elite, you um, bring apart, you talk about how they need to admit that they are not, that they are fallible kind of. Yes. And um, it seems like the way I'm, I'm viewing it and the way you just said, like it was kind of on the elites to kind of, you know, bring back this, this dissidence do you think that it would take the uh, um, I think that just even with this COVID kind of expectation, the elites coming out and, as you said, were saying some things that were untrue, that they knew were untrue, or they were saying some things as definite, which were not definite, that admission of, you know, we don't know everything. We're doing our best to, to you know, make uh, right of the situation. Do you think that needs to come before the like that? That's that's like one of that. Does that have to pre? you know, they have to come before the expectations being lowered. Like once they admit that they're infallible, do you think that the public will have an easier time of being like, well, they're human beings and maybe they can't solve every issue, but they're working, you know, that, that bring them back together on the same page almost. Well, I mean, I think, I, I think uh, responsibility falls on everyone. Honestly, I think the public creates the elites um, make believe authority when they when they say that they know more than they know when they tell you oh, I can solve unemployment oh I I can solve inequality and there is if I mean literature out there that shows that we have no clue it's not that it's a bad thing to aim for that can be debated it's just a just as a simple empirical matter of do we know how to do this and the answer is no any more than I know how to wave my arms and fly it, it can't happen right so um but we demand that we, the public, demand that they say that to us. Uh, we want we are that utopian expectations from the 20th century that I write about is is part of the rhetoric of the elites only because it gets votes, right? <laughs> so uh, the second that that we start saying no, that's that's bullshit. I mean, that's not going to happen. Um, and we say, tell us what you would do if this went wrong, right? Because what what happens with government is you have, you come in with these ideas, these programs, right? And then you, you ram them down Congress if you happen to have a majority. And then it has to be a success because if it's not, you're doomed, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of doing that, I think programs should be much smaller, much more discreet, much more trial and error. The direction, the objective can be made very clear. And you can say, well, if this fails, we're going to try this and that and the other. But um I think I think uh, the elites need to step up. Uh, that's not going to happen with this yeah. that we have right now. Okay, I mean, I I, I have come to a very I really went deep within myself because I don't like criticizing people. I don't like pointing fingers. But in the end, I, I just kind of 
came deep within myself. I thought this crowd we have today isn't going to do it. I mean, <laughs> you guys are younger and you may get to see a younger crowd move in that does it. I'm here to tell you the very youngest among you, I look at them and wonder, but, but, um, but the fact is this crowd isn't going to do it. We need new elites, but it can be done. It can be done. And it would be easier to do if we who are members of the public don't give away our votes on utopian hopes, but, but on. So you, you think know, we'll, we'll force their hand basically. Well, we could. I, yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. And I liked what I liked what you said, Martin, about at the end of the book, the, the added chapter, just about, you know, Jose Ortega um, selecting the elites, the the whole kind of yep. that theory of the virtues and talk about integrity, talk about humility, honesty, courage. Yep. How do we is, is is us as a people trying to is it us making an example for the elite or is it like Sal said, forcing the hand and truly making them kind of show those virtues and then everybody will trickle down. How do you view this whole process going? Cause I know it's going to be different than the industrial age. Yeah. I, and I don't really have an answer. I can tell you, um, uh, cause I, I am anything but a prophet. Um, I can tell you what I think can be done. And it's really not that this is not a gigantic, uh, uh thunder is new bit of wisdom but it's something that maybe has been forgotten a little bit. Um, each of us, each of us has a personal sphere of influence. I don't know how big it is. I mean, if you are uh, Joe Biden, that's pretty gigantic. If you're you or me, it's, it's a lot less. But do we have a sphere of influence? It includes our families, it includes our friends, it includes our, our workmates. It includes the people we encounter in the streets how we treat the, the, the waiters and waitresses at service. It includes a number of things that seem trivial, but are really very important from a human perspective. And if we decide that we in our personal sphere of influence are going to behave in the way that we would like the whole nation to behave or the whole American people to behave, um, we are doing all we can and you should be able to go to bed and sleep soundly because you, you have done a good thing. And even that is a struggle, it's a struggle. The problem is we are in an age where everybody wants to save the earth. But I mean, for the people who want to save the earth, I say, can you, for example, lose like 10 pounds or something like that? You know, I mean, if you're a little overweight, could you lose 10 pounds? And try and lose 10 pounds if you're overweight. I, I, I have been very fortunate in my life that I'm a thin guy, but <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, th there are, people who are wonderful human beings with tremendous discipline in my family, and it's hellish for them to lose weight, right? So if you have trouble losing weight, how the hell are you gonna save the earth, okay? So you can't save yourself, right? You can, in a trivial aspect such as that, how, what kind of magic are you gonna bring that you're going to save the earth? So instead of uh, uh, focusing on your immediate sphere, you're, you're immediately leaping over to the cosmic and thinking that you have become part of some messianic uh, movement that's going, you know, the, it's the Greater Thunberg syndrome, right? Mm. Greater, Greater Thun Thunberg uh, apparently has um, some pretty terrible personality disorders. I mean, somewhere in the spectrum, it sounds like for the way she describes herself anyway. Uh, and she, her therapy, literally, she says, 
is yelling at people about global warming, right? I mean, it's, she literally stood uh, at, at the United Nations General Assembly and yelled at all the heads of states of the world and said, shame on you. Those are the words she used, shame on you. And you're going like, she was like 14, you know? So um, she was being cosmic. She was having trouble in her personal life. She went cosmic instead. I think that's a mistake. I think you have to work out that personal, that personal side. You're never going to, you're never going to make a contribution if, if you're a tyrant to the people around you, or you are uh, like integrity to, with the people around you, or you're deceitful with the people around you, and then, but in a cosmic sense, you're very truthful and wonderful. That just doesn't work. That just doesn't work. Mm. And I, th- I think you do talk in your book a little bit about you know one option for the future might be more of you know horizontal power structures, dispersed network power structures rather than ver- vertical as a possible solution. That yeah. that type of hierarchy no longer can operate. So that kind of speaks to that a little bit that, you know, if the power is dispersed more, you don't have so much of that problems. Everybody has more personal responsibility. Yeah. And I think I, I would be surprised if that didn't happen at least somewhere. I mean, it may not be universal, but it, the possibility is there. Digital makes it really possible. My friend Balaji S., um, who is, is a, one of the, the smartest people around, a little crazy and... and uh, mm-hmm. You know, basically a visionary. He's a visionary, I guess I'd call him. So he goes beyond where I can see. Let's put it this way. Maybe he can see better than I can. Uh, so he talks about the possibility that you can create like virtual cities, virtual nations. You know, basically you can, you people can uh, associate in ways that are previously completely uh, unprecedented. Um, I think it's a good way to think. I don't think it's necessarily going to happen the way he, his visionary way describes it. But yes. I my what I always said being a lot more sort of like earthbound and Balaji um, <laughs> it, it is I think uh, in the future uh, in one possible future democracy is going to look very much like Switzerland and, right. in Swi- and in Switzerland you can't you don't even go to the central government to apply for citizenship you go to your little valley all your neighbors will hat in hand and say I want to apply for citizenship and the result of that is whatever happens, fair or unfair, the public can't say, um, well, it was it was the elites who forced this immigration upon us. And nobody can say, well, it was bigotry that kept it. It was us. <laughs> so well, it's only us to blame, right? So if, if it's bigotry, then it's our bigotry. And if it's the elites, then we're the elites. So you're basically solving the problem at the lowest possible level. And so this, this great, big alienation between the top and the bottom of society uh, can't happen. And I think that's a model. And I think that model can be, can, can scale uh, with digital. And do you think Martin that the, what Estonia has been doing with more of that structure, has that been a positive um, or a negative? Is it not enough data yet to really tell what's been going on there? No. Yeah. That, that's a country that I really wish I could, if, if I could find a rich person. To let's go Martin. Her. Come on. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. <laughs> yeah. There's absolutely nothing there as far as I can tell, you know, <laughs> I'm a pretty, pretty big traveler and I've never been close, uh, but I'd love to go. I think the big question about Estonia is, and just to, to frame what's going on there is it's probably the most, certainly the most active, e-citizenship, you know, digital citizenship uh, nation of the world. It has, you know, you are given a number. It's, it's got all kinds of protections and, and privacy. Uh, you're given a number 
So here in the United States, you every little agencies from the from the um, you know where you get your driver's license at to when you get your passport at to the social security, everybody's got the name, the different numbers, different names. No, this is one. You get one. You have ownership over your information. You can go to the police and say, what do you have there on me? And the police have got to give it to you. Mm. All right. So you can tell what. So there is a, a, um, a model there that is very digital, very uh, wide open um, and tends so far tends to work in terms of not being hacked. Now, the question is, it's a, it's a nation of one million, right? Can you scale that? To a nation of 320 million? I, and the answer is, I don't know. Wow. Now, my, my, one of my other questions that I had for you is defining the public. Now, us as a public, um, mm-hmm. can, is, it, is it possible for there to be a leader of the public, or is that more paradoxical to the authority being the leader of us as a public? Because, you know, I'm trying to find unification. And, and this goes into what you mentioned with radical ingratitude in a chapter, um, yeah. personal responsibility. We're talking about this. How does, I know probably the answer is, I don't know, but how do you think of is the best way for us to form up and really start having answers? Cause as we go to, I'm seeing um, articles about microchips. I'm seeing our, I'm seeing a lot of scary stuff that, that everybody in New York city, at least is having a little bit of a, of a freak out, Martin. Well, New York city has freak outs you know, so every, every, uh, <laughs> every few minutes. And uh, you guys are in Brooklyn, right? Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. Brooklyn is every nanosecond. <laughs> so that that's that's not to be taken seriously. Um, I, I mean, there is. We're talking about trust. The basic issue is trust. And people tell me, for example, well, there is no trust in America. And what I always say is, okay, how many of you? And there's three of you there. Uh, how many of you during the pandemic? used Amazon. Raise your hands. Okay. All right. So, okay. Now, what do you do when you use Amazon? You put your credit card number on some little mysterious slot that goes in some mysterious place and you push a button saying, oh, they're going to give me all these great things, right? All you're seeing is little pictures on the screen. And two days later, if you or sooner, if you're on Prime like I am, there it is on your doorstep right? Um, Amazon is a great big bureaucracy, all right? My son worked in one of the warehouses. I mean, it is a great big bureaucracy. That's not what you experience. What you experience is quick, inexpensive service, right? Now, the government is the most gigantic dispenser of services in the history of the human race, all right? It just gives it away. They've been giving out trillions of dollars worth of services, right? That's not what you experience. What you experience is bureaucracy, condescension, arrogance, incompetence, and lots of times failure. So what has to happen? Well, the government has to look more. The institutions have to look more like Amazon and less like the Great Pyramid of Egypt, right? <laughs> that you can't budge. So it has to be flatter. It has to be faster. Faster, and I think that is um, that is the nature of the digital. So if that were to happen, the same amount of trust that we put in Amazon without even thinking about it, where you're putting away your life savings. I mean, somebody could take that number and just clean you out, but you trust that it's not going to happen. In fact, you trust that within a day or two 
something's going to show up on your doorstep like Santa Claus, right? <laughs> and there it's going to be uh, uh, exactly what you wanted. It's not going to be better or worse. It's, it's going to be exactly what you wanted. Well, that's trust. And trust gets regained, I think, not just by us, the public, banding together or finding a leader or anything like that. It has to be in our interactions with the institutions. It is the institutions that bind us together, all right? And we can't separate from the institutions pretend to come to a, a, a fix for this situation. We have to fix the institutions. Right, and you know, we've been talking a lot about you know, solutions or what's to be done, what the future might look like. And you know, there's something that you wrote in your book that for me was the most important thing I encountered in it. And at one point um, you draw an analogy between what you think is happening now and in some ways, you know, the religious wars of the Reformation in the 16th and 17th century, in the sense that you know, we might be in a situation where it, one side is not strong enough to dominate another side in a point where this just goes on until we evolve into something new. Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that, because you don't see that type of historical analysis, for that type of thing, the type of the idea that we have things to learn in the future. If you could expand that a little bit, I think people would find that interesting. Yeah. I mean, if, if somebody from the 17th century were magically brought right here to, a Zoom, to our Zoom meeting, <laughs> right. uh, the first thing that person would do would be turning to us and say, who won? The Catholics or the Protestants? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and you would say, well, in a way, neither, in a way, both, right? So it, it, this, the destructive collision of those two forces that killed millions in Europe, uh, and I have an, an interesting anecdote about, about the Thirty Years' War, if you want to hear about, about it later. Um, the, the, the death and, and hostility, somehow what happened was people decided this is insane, and uh, there was a, number one, a, a very cynical decision that whatever the prince believed, that was going to be your religion, all right? So if your prince was Catholic, damn it, you're a Catholic. If your prince is a Protestant, you're a Protestant. And if you don't like it, go to some other prince. So, um, but then what happened beyond that, once, once the, the fire went out of that, of that conflict, was that the Enlightenment was a sense that we needed somehow to save our, uh, our values from religion, in a sense, from that conflict of religion, so um, so you have a, an evolution that what that goes beyond that. I think today we, we have the public and we uh, and the elites. I don't think either side could. This is not like there is no ideologies involved. The public is completely incoherent ideologically, and the elites just are looking for their, for their own behinds. I mean, they really truly don't care about anything other than staying at the top. So. It's a conflict that's going to be resolved at some point, either by the destruction of the current institutions of liberal democracy and something else replacing it. There is nothing, I have to say, in the horizon, as far as the eye can see, to replace it, precisely because nobody's dealing in ideologies today. Mm -hmm. So with luck, and I always, in the end, it's not my analytical mind, it's an act of faith. Uh, I say, you know, democracy will will transcend this moment. We will find a way in which we can deal with the tsunami of information and turn it to our advantage. I think there, as we talked about before, there are many ways. I mean, part of what was wrong or, or was perceived to be, um, you know, the, the public's hostility towards the, the, the institutions is 
the 20th century model of liberal democracy wasn't particularly democratic. It was based on all these gigantic institutions that were very pyramidal, very hierarchical, and everybody was saluting the person in front of them, the person above. Well, that's not democracy. Democracy is we're all equal, right? And I think with the digital world, there's at least the potential to be more equal. Now, I might, I'm going to make an act of faith and say it, it might happen. It's not going to happen in my lifetime, by the way. But you guys are borderline young enough that you might see it. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. If, if you, Martin. Martin, what do you is, think? Go ahead, Paul. Now, there's one of the things I, I like about your analysis, that it's nuanced in the sense that, you know, you do identify that there's a complete lack of ideology from the public. But in some ways, it can be justified because their, their, lack of, their lack of obedience to the center, it makes sense. So that's kind of the problem we have here because the elites have kind of ceded their authority. So that's the issue. I was just wondering, you know, if you're doing a lot of these interviews, I imagine now in the last few years, more than you have in the past, do you find that people are accepting of that idea that maybe there cannot be an absolute winner or do people, you know, seem to try to push you to say, you know, what can we do? What side? If they're, if they're more, you know, in favor of the censor, if they're more in favor of the border, can people wrap their heads around that type of thing? Because it's such long time scales. We don't think that way as human beings. We think about the next 10 years, next five years. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty unusual interview for me because you guys are just regular people, you know. <laughs> um, I, 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 I always joke when I go to conferences, you know, it's an old joke by now, but it's always new to the, the conference, which is that I never get invited to, to conferences by the public. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> it's, it's always the elites. <laughs> so, because they have the money <laughs> and they take me to nice places. Right. So, um, I, you know, it, it where this is headed, um, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate. I, I just wouldn't even want to begin to, to, to guess. Um, but for my interviews, the best, the best effect I ever have. The last one I went to, nobody had read my book, and that's getting to be, I want to <laughs> say, pretty rare, which is good, right? Well, but nobody, nobody's. But it was, it was really good people i'm not going to give away the place very good people they're all there to do um you know a lot of good work like with uh, um, homeless people and drug addicts and so forth um so these were actually good human beings very well off beautiful place never had read my book uh and i felt like it was all i want to do is put this framework in front of them i said to them i said you know okay so explain to the public is uh, told my joke about the conference. And I said, uh, so who are the elites? And I said, I mean, I have a chandelier over my bed in the place I was staying in, right? I said, so you guys are either elites or you're really good impersonators, right? So you got, <laughs> so you got to listen. you got to listen because it's all on you. You are the right. ones at the top of the pyramid. It's all on you. So I think there is a, a willingness to listen. Um, you know, you you throw your seed out there and you don't know what's going to grow and you don't know what it's not going to grow. Um, I, I don't believe like I'm, I, I'm not into saving the world. Uh, I am the opposite of that. Um, but I think the idea that, I mean, I think that people have Donald Trump's victory. That was the big thing for my ideas is that everybody just going to went like, what the heck? And, and, um, and then they turn to the book and go, Oh, um, and so I think, I guess it's gotten even crazier since, uh, I think they are, they are open to hear what I'm saying. No question, there have been places I've been to where it's just been kind of insufferable because 
they want you to say, oh yes, we need to put controls on, right. on, on social media. We need to put controls on, on the internet. Oh yes, the public lives in this tiny little bubble that is being misled by these, these terrible populists. And oh yes, and you gotta go in like, I mean, if you wanna talk about bubbles, you wanna talk about information bubbles, the elites at their worst live in the tiniest informational bubble uh, that you can imagine, right? Because it is reinforced. I mean, if you if you are part of that cognitive underclass, if you're actually Babbitt, you know, if you are if you're one of these people who who are kind of detached from reality, you're still exposed to the New York Times, to is it exposed to the, uh, um, NBC News, you're exposed to CNN, so you're seeing all the time the opposite viewpoint. Now you, it makes you angry and you you rebel against it, but you're seeing it. Um, the thing about the bubble of the elites is they don't see it because all those all those prestigious media uh, outlets are saying the same thing they are. So yeah. it's like this gigantic echo chamber. So and at their worst, those, those are uh, have had that experience. But I think by and large, most people today at the top are willing to listen. Mm. Even here in Washington, where, by the way, I've always... Another one of my my silly jokes was, you know, that I, I was a, a hero in, in Silicon Valley, uh, but a zero in Washington. Yeah, uh, <laughs> because because um, you know this is like the land of the establishment, right? And in Silicon Valley, they're into disruption. I mean, it's not like those people are those people are not elites. I mean, they're all billionaires, right? But but they know that they're into disruption. Uh, and they they get that they get disruption. Here is about sustaining, and right. they don't want to hear about disruption. But even that has changed. I actually, a couple of politicians have approached me, and I feel like okay, that's weird. It's beginning to the ice is beginning oh, to thaw. That's oh. that. Yeah, that's awesome. It seems like in, in the book you reference that the, the the elites are trying to separate themselves from the public more and more as we keep dividing lines. So you're saying that in the in the past. It's even recently, it's been becoming more of coming together. That's a good sign, right? Well, I think these people were all relatively young. Okay. Okay. There are people in this town who are, believe it or not, 35 and under. And um, at every, every instance of uh, communications that I've had has been with them. And they are, and, and they are honestly the best you can ask for in the sense that they, they're telling me, I don't know. I don't understand, you know. Mm -hmm. And they, I tell them, I tell them, well, I don't either. But uh, let's talk about it, you know. Um, so, so they're coming to this this chaos with a lot of modesty. I feel. I don't know whether when they turn to their their um, you know their voters, then they pretend to be wiser than they are. But I don't think so. I think there's now this is a moment where it's okay to say I don't get what's going on here. How can we? What's new and different that we can think about to get around it? So, yeah, I think I think this, the, the ice is beginning to thaw. It gets harder and harder to ignore that you know yeah. things are going wrong too. After a while, I mean, no matter how stubborn yeah. you are, you could yeah. have to believe your eyes. Yes, particularly here in Washington. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I love what you do with the book. It's almost like you're a doctor. You're not taking a side. You're not. You're, you're you shit on Obama. You shit on Trump, and you're just saying I'm a doc. I'm diagnosing what I'm seeing from the data, and and for me, it just started getting me thinking. Like I've been thinking from this little tiny Brooklyn, New York kid, doing pretty okay. Um, 
advising some of these high net worth guys who I agree are just on another planet. They live in their bubble, right? And it's just, I think if people start looking at things from a different perspective, maybe it takes a little more critical thinking, maybe it takes taking personal responsibility, push away this victimhood of, of you know, we're the, we're the problem, you know, this is the just blame game. Things could end up being a lot better, you know? No, I, I mean, things are pretty good, okay? I, I'm here to tell you, I'm a, I'm a really old person, okay? I mean, I have a really old person. This may be shocking to you, but I am. Um, and I have seen this country grow in wealth in a pretty amazing way. When I was young, being middle class meant, you know, you lived in these little houses. If you were, you know, pretty affluent, you had a house, right? It was a dream way to have a house. You had one bathroom for your whole family as you fought over all the time, right? Uh, you were lucky if you had a washer and a dryer. Most people by that time had, but not everybody did. Uh, you had one car. This is all statistical. You could go to, in 1960, look up the average uh, square footage of America. Look up the average number of cars per, per household in America. It, it, it was another world from what exists today. And there has been maybe more inequality that's what happens when, when wealth bounds up for some reason. It never happens, you know, it's, it's a power curve. It never happens in, in even ways. But the fact is, the concern for me would be if the people at the bottom were sinking and the people at the top were rising. I do not believe that to be the case. I do not believe that to be the case. Mm -hmm. I believe the people at the bottom are rising slower than the people at the top. No question <laughs> about that, right? And there's always some that get left behind, and you have to make sure that doesn't happen. But... If you're, I say, uh, if you have uh, my immense perspective on time, I can tell you that the persons who were middle, middle class, when I moved to Northern Virginia way back when, it was a really, really middle, 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 middle class place. Um, it isn't anymore, by the way. It, it, like this, I live, I think, in the wealthiest county in America. Go more. Go government had nothing to do with it, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but you looked at the houses that we lived in back in those days, that would be considered like a working class neighborhood today. I mean, that we could consider uh, somebody who doesn't make that much money would only live in those tiny little houses, you know, which my mother lived in hers till she died uh, a couple of years ago. So it was like a little, you know, Gurry homestead. Uh, and it was this little place. I mean, we literally couldn't fit around the damn table. The, the dining room was too small, you know? Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good good message too. You don't hear a lot. We live in a very like kind of polarizing media landscape. Yeah. This idea that you know these problems are real and they're serious, but it's also not the apocalypse tomorrow. They're problems that we can maybe mitigate, we can work on, but you need to actually get in there and do things. But there is there are some solutions to things. I think too much people fall on one side or the other, trying to maintain a status quo or trying to just frighten people one way. So I do like your book and that you do try to find that nuance there. Yeah, you spoke about the people uh, trying like um uh, they, they wanted to destroy the whole system, but yet, if you if you look at where you're coming from, the ability to go out and do that wouldn't exist without the system that you're trying to destroy. Yeah. Which it's is a, like it's like a, uh, you know you you take for granted like just because everything's not. You talked about that like ultimate happiness every because everything wasn't like perfectly happy. They wanted to blow up the whole system, but like look at all the progress we've made. If 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 you take a further step back, look at somebody living in the 1600s compared to now, oh. how much. Like, or, 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 or the 1900s compared to now, how much better your life is, you know, it's, it's not the, uh, like I you mean, say, it's not the end of the world. I mean, John D. Rockefeller would, would, I think without a moment's hesitation, trade his 
lifestyle of way back in the year 1900 with any one of you guys. All right. Because, you know, you, you, you're so mobile, you have so much information, you, uh, you, you understand so much of the world. If you want to, um, you can, uh, turn on your TV and be exposed to great art, great cinema, great shows, all kinds of other things that may not be so great, but, but uh, entertaining in, in uh, good and bad ways. Uh, and get in your car and drive, go anywhere you want to. I mean, all of those things John D. Rockefeller couldn't do. He was the wealthiest man of his day. And I, I can guarantee you, your lifestyle is freer and less determined by the hardness of reality than his was back then. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, uh, I think it was sort of the benefits of old age is you, you get perspective on things. Um, but I've always been kind of a, you know, you have to step, take a step back and say there are conditions, never call them problems, there are conditions that need to be fixed, right? They need to be addressed. Need to, you know, we, need, we, need to, we need to talk about how the institutions are crumbling around us because if we don't, democracy is in trouble. That's not a joke. That's serious. But this is not in a framework of, you know, the apocalypse, you know, the sun isn't falling down from the sky, the beast isn't coming down to eat us. I mean, there aren't, this is not doomsday that's happening here. Greta Thunberg should be put in a little box and, and shut away for a while. <laughs> um, because it, I think that's, that's the message of, of, uh, of our, our information environment is it we're at the edge of catastrophe there's terrible things happening there are terrible people who do terrible things all the time and they're in power and you, you hear this over and over again and then i look out in the streets i see my my very friendly neighbors walking around waving at me you know wow. during covid we were all going to stand 10 feet apart and wave at each other you know and you go like well this this is nothing like what you hear about you know this is nothing like what you hear about and i don't think my neighborhood is unique i have a son in, in brooklyn all right so wow. i go there all I go there all the time. He's got uh, two kids. His wife and two kids are there. So I go to Brooklyn all the time and people are friendly. It's probably way better than Manhattan, I think. Um, Absolutely. People yeah. actually wave at you and, and, and nod at you. And there's a family place, you know. And, um, so all this, all this apocalypse that you get in the media is to a certain extent not false if you look at our institutions and you look at the, the alienation of the public. But in terms of the, the bigger reality, how we all live, it is false. We don't live in the, in the apocalypse. We live in a world of, of kindly neighbors that help us out and families that help us out and so forth. Mm. Now, now, Martin, if you're, a, if you're a young person listening to this, you're 16, 17, 18, you're caught up in social media, you're listening from New York, wherever these heavy, these heavy states, how do you decipher all of this information? And is it just trying, because you would think 20 years ago, oh, well, in 20 years from now, there's going to be tons, we're going to have more information. That's good. Do you think people would be smarter? There would be more critical thinking. There would be more thought process. And I feel like people are, are becoming more like zombies as we go. And they're more lining up and more drawing lines. What, what do you do to, to get a clear head through this? Yeah, I think Matthew Glessis just you know, posted something about how you know the more competitive the media gets, the worse it is for our heads. Yep. You know? uh, okay. Let's be a little counterintuitive here. How much of that information has anything to do with your life? All right. Not much. I mean, 
I ha- I'll tell you an anecdote, a personal anecdote in my family. Right, my 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 youngest sister um, is a teacher in California, and she was just she went almost into a depression when Trump won. She was scared, and after a while, I said to her, "Okay, give me one." And this is like maybe a year after Trump was in, in office, and and I'm not a big advocate of Trump. I mean, the Trump was was something else, but but. This idea of living in fear and depression, but give me one thing. The president, our, our system, our political system is so constituted that for the federal government to actually reach out and touch you, many, 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 many things have to happen that usually don't, all right? So I said, give me one, for instance, of something Trump has done that has affected your life. And she said, well, she thought about it. Well, the only thing was that she had gotten a... Uh, a check from him because he was doing the, the tax tax cut thing, you know. So I say, well, that's terrifying, you know. <laughs> so, so basically, when you look at that information, the first thing you have to realize that it's a lot of it has to do with. You know, I'm a big baseball fan, you know, and so suppose that I thought baseball was life or death. I mean, I would be slashing my wrist right now because the Washington Nationals is basically tanked. All right, they're even worse yeah. than the Mets, for God's yep. sakes. You know? I'm a Mets fan here. I know all about that. <laughs> so, I mean, good God. So much of what you read, I, and I really don't even mean this as a metaphor. I mean it literally. Um, much of what you read is in the nature of a sporting event. In other words, it will never have an effect on your life. You may feel like your values are engaged or the people that you like in, in, in public office are engaged, but that's kind of like a baseball game, right? You know, mm. like I'm rooting for one Soto or whatever. So um, so I think the first thing you have to do if you're a young person is go deep inside yourself and find out what is it that touches you and that, that, that immediate circle of influence that is part of your life, all right? Um, and then the rest of it, you treat kind of like a sporting event, right? I mean, skeptically, you always have to be skeptical. And, you know, I always say you can always learn something from everything. And I think my friend, Andre Mir, who wrote this book called Post-Journalism, which I recommend to everybody, uh, says the, more, the most interesting news are the fake news. Uh, and, they, and the most interesting part of the fake news is the fake part. Mm-hmm. And having come from what, what essentially was propaganda analysis, I absolutely know what he means, right? You can learn so much about a message by understanding why people are saying things that are obviously not true. Who is it that's saying it? Who do they think the audience is? How do they think the audience is going to react? Is the audience actually reacting that way? Is it not? You know, you learn so much, all right? So instead of kind of embracing some ideal of platonic truth that you personally are certain of because truth is a shaky thing, not because it doesn't exist. Obviously, I'm not a postmodernist, but because we each have a perspective. So we each see the truth from a very different place, right? So it's shaky. It's a little shaky. You may be seeing something that I don't see. I may be seeing something that you don't see. And neither was his line, all right? We're just situated differently. So I would, you learn perspective by looking even at fake news. I think it's a lesson in people's perspectives, even malicious fake news. You go, well, there are people who think that it's a good thing to lie. Why, what, why would that be? Who are these people? What do they gain from this? Who are the people they think they're lying to? 
how do they think those people are going to behave? Do they really behave that way? I mean, we came up with all kinds of analytical models uh, in CIA to look at that kind of stuff. And honestly, Andre, obviously, he's a Russian background, so he, he was not with that crowd, but, but he grew up in Russia with propaganda. So he understood that even from fake news, you can learn. Once you have drawn that line of, okay, what is really important? What's really important is what happens in my, my immediate circle. If, if my next door neighbor gets a gun and starts shooting, that's really important, all right? If, if people get shot in Chicago and in a gangland shooting, that's just tragic, all right? But, but it's, you can't internalize that because you don't know, nobody's telling you about all the happy people that didn't get shot, right? You're just hearing about the people who, who you know, some tragedy was, was uh, or crime was perpetrated or whatever, right? So I, I would say, just draw that line of what really touches you and the rest treat as if you are going to learn something from everything, even when you know that it's a lie. Well, well said, Martin. So I guess me thinking that the elites are shipping kids in Wayfair boxes in Wayfair, that was what got me during COVID, unfortunately. I was, I was digging into that for, for hours, Martin. You would have been so upset with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no. If if you look at it, if you look at it as that's, I mean, I spend all this time reading about the nets, right? I mean, uh, I feel like as long as you know what you're doing, you said this is something that I like to do. I like, I enjoy dealing in this kind of, you know, strange like entertainment world. of sorts. It's like entertainment. It, it totally is entertainment. It's totally entertainment, and mm. it's sold as entertainment. Mm. So somebody's making money because you're reading that thing. It's not just kind of like some some. Uh, you know, Socratic dialogue happening under the, 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 the columns in, in Athens. Mm -hmm. This is this is commercial stuff that you are consuming, just like the, the Washington Nationals is not a pure sporting event. No, it's people are making money on this, right? And I know it. I don't care. It's good. That's a good way to put it. Paul and Sally, you got any other questions for Martin? Not right now. Uh, no, I think I read. You know, I had a, I have a personal question. I don't know if this is going to be out of left field. I don't know if... Uh... <laughs> If this is going to be relevant, but have you, have you either like personally or professionally been influenced by like the philosophy of Frederick Nietzsche in any of your work and just the idea of, you know, kind of the, the Western kind of destruction of values and kind of the nihilism and the, 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 the situation we're in after postmodernism, the post-postmodernist world that we're in, has that affected your analysis at all? People would say yes. That's what I read into it. I don't know if I was uh, just kind of off base. I mean, I, I, of course, I, when I was a young man, I consumed Nietzsche, like, you know, I couldn't get enough of him. Mm -hmm. and I thought he was brilliant. As, as many young people do. Yes. And, and then when I had children, I said, well, that's, that was a terrible philosophy. I don't know. That <laughs> you know, I don't want my kids to read that. You know? <laughs> and, and now that I'm old, I'm actually coming back to it and saying, well, there are parts of that that are extremely interesting and, and wise. Right. Uh, but um, I mean, I think I look at the world as having, I don't believe in there are many things that are socially constructed in the way that people talk about race being socially constructed or sex. Mm -hmm. But I think there, there are many things that, that can only function socially, right? I mean, um, if my society says I'm married, I am married. I, it's a subjective condition, but it's objectively true, right? right. If, everybody, if everybody would say in the United States of America, no, you're not married, I wouldn't be, <laughs> right? right? So, so there, there, um, you know, there's there's a sense of the social, the power of social, uh, and and that how it pertains to truth that is associated with 
through Nietzsche to through the Frankfurt School and, right. and you know some you know Marxist writer. I ne have never read anything from Frankfurt School, so I'm associated with them sometimes. And what what I know about them, I, I get why they I'm associated. Um, but I am not a postmodernist. I I don't believe. I believe that reality is very hard. I just believe that it it to pretend that you know it. Um, Put you in the position of God, and, and none of us is that. So, so it, it, it's it's a hard thing that we perceive very partially. So sometimes we get run over by a truck because we didn't mm -hmm. see it coming. You know, so that's hard. But I didn't see it coming because why? Because I was looking the wrong way. That was my perspective. Right. I mean, yeah, on a cultural level, that's just something I feel like. Whether or not something is objectively true is almost irrelevant. It's whether we all can agree that it's true, and yeah. you need that any society throughout history in order to function. And for some reason, I think that has kind of gone higher a bit where just if you're talking about the United States, Western civilization or globally, we just can't have any type of we can't agree on anything. Our basic reality is true on any level. And, you know, I think maybe that, again, as I was saying, I don't know if that's because of social media or it just comes out in that. But I think that's something we have to work towards in the future, kind of regrounding ourselves. And who knows what the new values will be? As you say, you know, there might be decades in the future. We might not have any clue what they'll yep. be. Yep. Yeah. Well, I don't agree with any of that. Well, Martin, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Uh, everyone, please, please read uh, The Revolt of the Public. We'll put a little bit in the link in the notes below. Sal and Paul, thank you for your time. Martin, thank anything you. else coming up? Anything uh, going on you want to talk about? Uh, well, I just published a, uh, an article on history that addresses something about uh, some of the uh, subjects that Paul just raised on Discourse, which is a Mercatus Center uh, magazine, a really good magazine. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming up to the end of an article on that cognitive underclass, these people who basically deny the reality of things that are obviously true, uh, but I don't have a venue yet, so I can't tell you, I don't know what's gonna, where it's gonna be published. Okay, cool. cool. Well, everyone check out Martin's uh, notes in the bottom. Again, Martin, thank you so much. Everyone, that's it. We'll talk to you later. Hey, thanks. See you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, this guys. A, this was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Martin, Thank always, you. always welcome. The next book, when you, when you're predicting the future, <laughs> I know you're not a prophet, but listen, listen. All right, we'll talk to you later, right. guys.